Hello, friend, and Ramadan Kareem. This special episode of the Changing Lenses podcast is being released just before the holy month of Ramadan, an incredibly significant time in the Islamic faith. I am Rosie Young, your host and guide on the journey of justice, equity, decolonization, and inclusion, or JEDI for short. My mission is to help people with privilege dismantle systemic inequity while helping people without privilege survive it. Now, I myself am not Muslim, which is why I've invited Saleha Khan to share what Ramadan means to her as a Muslim woman living in Canada. Saleha was born in Pakistan, raised in Saudi Arabia, and immigrated to Canada as an adult. She also happens to be a specialist in equity, diversity, and inclusion, having worked in this field for over 20 years, almost 14 of which was spent with various Ontario police forces. Saleha is also active in social justice and volunteering outside of work and was previously recognized by the Canadian Council of Muslim Women for the Women Who Inspire Award. So Saleha's professional experience is clearly relevant and impressive, but our conversation today is going to be more personal. We're going to hear how she experienced Ramadan in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, countries where Islam is the majority faith. And then we're going to hear how she experiences Ramadan today, as well as her overall experiences as a Muslim woman living in Canada. If you are an HR or people manager who's ever had to respond to requests for religious or cultural time off beyond Christian and stat holidays, maybe this episode will help you understand why it is so important and necessary to provide it. And if you already understand why it's important, and are wondering how you can respect and support your coworkers and friends who observe Ramadan, Saleha will give you some ideas for that also. I know that there may be some sensitive or triggering topics that come up, so I commit to you that I'm listening and sharing from a place of love and respect that your story matters and that your truth is welcome here. And for you who's listening right now, please be aware that we will be talking about sensitive topics like racism and Islamophobia. So do take care of yourself, listen with caution, and take breaks or stop as needed. So with that, Saleha, assalamu alaikum, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Wa alaikum That was a very kind introduction. Thank you so much, Rosie, for that. It is our honor to have you here, especially right before Ramadan starts. And I also just kind of want to mention to our listener that this is not meant to be, you know, you are the teacher of all things Islam and oh, gosh, this, no. we just have to listen to this one episode and we, and therefore we know everything about Ramadan. Please, listener, I encourage you, do your own learning. This is one part of our learning, but the burden should never be on any one person. So we're grateful that you're here to share your personal story and also what things are like in different countries where faith is not majority Christian. So maybe we could actually start with that. If you could tell us what it was like living in Saudi Arabia as a woman, as a Muslim woman, and dismantle or demystify some stereotypes that we in the West typically have about that. So I can start with, um, there are escalators and elevators. The shopping malls are absolutely astoundingly beautiful. You get your choice and pick of European luxury and you know, perfumes that you want from France or from Italy. It's interesting because when I moved here, I think, and I moved in 2001, and one of the first things that I really noticed was how it was an experience that was lacking for me. It was an experience that 
made me miss having access to the things that I had where I just sort of kind of took them for granted. You know, I wasn't driving, but I was driven everywhere. My kids went to school. I was teaching at a university. I was running my own business. I had my consulting. I taught men and women. So it wasn't so different. And the difference that I felt was more in terms of, oh, I no longer have access to the things that I was used to. And I know I'm speaking from a place of privilege. I absolutely know that. You know, growing up, the home that we had, we had everything. My parents were very well off. So it was never an issue of, okay, where are we going to go and what's going to happen? And, you know, eating out or not, like all the restaurants were there. And it was funny because some of the chains that I used to go to in Riyadh haven't yet made their way into Canada, haven't yet made their way into the eastern side of Canada. And again, like in terms of access or in terms of what I would miss, those were some of the things that I would, I can always go back and say, oh, we didn't have that. Um, No, we actually had a lot more over there and far more greater access. And again, as I said, I am coming from a place of privilege. When it comes to Ramadan, because those were some of the questions that we had kind of talked about. Mm. So growing up, all of my Ramadans were actually in Saudi Arabia. I never celebrated Ramadan in let me see. Should I say never? Yeah. Well, like until four. I have no memory of, of Ramadan before that in Pakistan, per se. So is it, is it that you were too young to remember or that you actually didn't celebrate it in Pakistan? I'm too young to remember. I was three and a half when we left. So yeah. my memory doesn't go back to <laughs> the celebration of Ramadan and what it would have been in Pakistan. I don't, I just don't remember it. My memory um, doesn't go to yesterday. So I <laughs> <laughs> But definitely in terms of Saudi Arabia, that whole month is, you know, the starting of Ramadan. So actually, the, the whole kind of recognition that Ramadan is coming would have begun from the first of Shaban, which fell on 4th of March. And so, you know, that whole month is kind of uh, a preparation. And it's a physical preparation and it's a mental preparation. It, there's an excitement that comes in our homes. There's an excitement in the community. There's this sense of, okay, Ramadan is going to be there. One of the prayers that I was taught was that when Ramadan is ending, we are sad. To, there is a huge celebration because it's Eid, right? So an Eid, actually the word itself means happiness and joy and a celebration of joy. So we celebrate, yet at the same time, we're sad to see it go because it's a guest, it's a reminder, it's that significant time that comes to us once a year, and we wait for it for the whole year. And as it leaves us, we wish for it, for ourselves to see it the next year as well. Okay, Salaya, I really want to hear, because again, in the West, there's so many things that gets distorted into how oppressive or how uncomfortable Islam is. And honestly, how I became aware of Ramadan, it was years ago because I had some Muslim friends, but all I really knew about it was people are fasting and, oh, isn't that difficult because you're hungry and thirsty the whole day and people have to change their work schedules because it's based on... So it just, it sounds, yeah, uncomfortable would be the nicest way to put it. What you're describing is something that people are looking forward to and it's anticipatory, kind of like in Christians would feel about Christmas. So What is Ramadan? What is the significance of Ramadan that would bring that anticipation? So so the significance of Ramadan as I grew up with it. So as a child, 
I didn't fast. I was actually not allowed to fast because there is no fasting that will be prescribed for a child, a person who is unwell, an elderly person, a woman who's menstruating, or a, a woman who is pregnant or has given birth recently, or someone who's nursing. So there are kind of caveats around it that you have to be physically fit to be able to fast. And, you know, the whole notion that women are not going to be fasting for A, B, or C, or D reasons, it's connected with the fact that, especially for a woman's body, is uh, either maintaining itself or is sustaining another being. So whether it's through pregnancy or whether it's through nursing, so that's the part where, you know, they're not going to fast at that time because they need to be nourishing themselves and so that they're able to nourish and sustain another life. Ramadan is a cleansing, a reconnection, deactivating, decoupling, shutting down from everything that is around that keeps us connected to the material side of who we are. Really kind of recharging our metaphysical batteries, if we're going to say that. Uh, it's the time to take a pause on multiple levels. So the physical side of pause is the fasting, right? So we're not going to eat. We're not going to drink from sunrise to sunset. So it's very specific timing. And beyond that, of course, you have the time to eat whatever you want, drink whatever is acceptable. And so ultimately what it forces us to do is to take care of our bodies. We're going to give them a break. We're going to kind of reset the body system. And that's why the way the, the fasting is done, you do the fasting and it's not like over a much longer period of time frame. It's just that one month of resetting. So that's the physical aspect of it. In terms of the, the kind of the spiritual side is, of course, that's the time when we are going and praying in a congregational setting where we're praying in a group. And we're praying with the community. So I'm able to look at people around me and I can connect with them and I can see someone who's hurting and I can see someone who's in need and I can see someone, I'm like, wow, you know, you're not looking well. Is everything okay? So again, there's, that's also the resetting of personal relationships and, and a reminder to myself, to, to me as a person, as a Muslim person, that I have a responsibility towards my neighbors. I have a responsibility towards my community. And that's why the idea, you know, culturally speaking, how it's been reflected in is people are getting together to break fast. People are getting together here, you know, in Canada. Those who can will go to the mosque and bring food items to break fast so that everybody can share it. So it's also, again, strengthening the community and people learning to share and people learning in that aspect where haves and have nots are basically equalized, right? So because I have access to funds, I can make so much and I can bring it to a place. And those who are coming in to eat, everyone is sitting down and eating together. So no one knows who actually had food cooked in their home that night or they didn't, right? Because everybody is sitting down and eating together. So that's also the part of community sharing and community caring that comes out of that. So that's how I look at it in terms of, you know, why Ramadan is what it is and what it has meant to me as a child, as growing up, and as a person. And so culturally speaking, the first time I fasted, uh, so as a child when I was fasting, I would literally be told, and I did the same thing with my kids, 
I would tell them because they were so little and it was like, no, I don't want to fast. And, you know, they'd get upset like, well, no, you're not fast. No, well, well, why are you fasting? Why can't I fast? I'm like, okay, fine. So then (laughs) they will fast between breakfast and lunch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then they will fast between lunch and dinner time, for example, when we'll be breaking fast. And it was That's like, okay. very sacrificial for kids, though. It was very sacrificial. Kids- <laughs> yes, it's very sacrificial for kids at that time. Yeah. And fasting, the physical side of the fasting, but the biggest side of the fasting that really is the most significant is controlling our, our ego, controlling our anger, thinking more in terms of gratitude. And one of the things that we do as part of fasting is before Ramadan begins, I would reach out to family and friends and I would seek their forgiveness. And I would say, for the hurt that I have given you intentionally and for the hurt that I have given you unintentionally, because sometimes, and I know I do that, you know, open wide, insert both feet. So sometimes I say things and I, I do not know that I would have hurt another person. But I need to get that. I need to seek that forgiveness from them to say, hey, so that as we start that month, we're starting that month with, a again, recognition of how that cleansing is going to be. So that's kind of sort of what happens over, over the month for us in terms of the spiritual and the physical aspect. One of the questions I always get is, oh, my God, not even water? And I'm like, <laughs> yep, you're right. Not even water. Oh, so you're not going to eat anything? I said, no. Listen. And, and I always say that I'm like, look, this is, this is the deal for this entire month. You will not see me eating. You will not see me drinking during the day hours, you know, from this time to this time. And a lot of times people have said, and that's very respectful when they say that, oh, I'm eating in front of you. I don't feel good about it. And, I, and at my end, it's perfectly okay. And there will be other people for whom it will not be easy. If the person hasn't expressed it, a lot of times, a lot of times, people do not want to make waves because I'm not, I'm not necessarily walking down the hallway saying, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. <laughs> we don't do that. You know, right. most of us do not do that because it's a very personal and private act of worship at the same time. Yes. So we're fasting and a lot of times, you know, it's lunchtime. Uh, oh, hey, aren't you coming and joining us? No, it's, that's okay. You know, um, not today. A lot of times people will not say beyond that, you know. They're just not going to even say it. I am fasting or whatever. Because of how I work and where I work and the job that I do, I find that it's easier for me to say, yeah, well, no, you know what? Not today. I'm, I'm fasting this week. The thing, of course, that always comes up as a woman for me is, uh, and as someone who hasn't hit menopause yet, is that when I'm on my period, I'm not, I'm not fasting. So that's when I would just walk in and I'm like, oh, hey, and I'll pick something up from the table and I'm eating and they're looking at me going, but you were fasting aren't yesterday. Fasting? Yeah, aren't you fasting? And I'm like, no, nope, I'm not fasting today. And it's in a room full of men and women. You know, sometimes there's always someone's like, oh, why not? And then I'm like, well, <laughs> I have my period. Yep, that's the reason. And the funniest thing is the reaction that I get from the room. Um, you know, it's just like, <gasps> like, dude, it's normal. <laughs> it's okay. It's just, it's life. But a lot of times people do not want to make waves. They don't want to stick out. Muslim women who wear hijab specifically stick out as it is already. Muslim men who will wear cultural clothing or wear a kufi, again, same thing. They will also stick out. I haven't changed my name. I kind of stick out because of that. And I stick out anyway because of you know, the color of my skin and who I am. So we don't necessarily want to draw further attention to ourselves. 
especially in an environment that is rife with discrimination, unfortunately. And so it just becomes a little bit more challenging than to be placed in scenarios and situations where you're constantly being reminded. This is also what I would like people to understand and I want to understand is when Ramadan, Ramadan itself sticks out because it's not the norm in Canada and in, in the U.S. What is it like working during, I don't know if you worked personally when you were in Saudi Arabia, but for your parents or people working, what is it like when it is the norm? Is it work as usual or is it different? The last two weeks of Ramadan, it was generally when people would take time off. So, you know, you get your summer vacation and then you get that time frame, you know, you, you have the vacation time that you have. And I'm saying summer vacation for me because I went to school, so I got a summer vacation. <laughs> but but for adults who are working, there is no summer vacation, of course, right? Like they're just, they're going to work throughout all the time. But people were given that time off. That was part of the package. That two weeks were paid off um, the, the last two weeks of Ramadan and then the first week of Eid. So there were three weeks that people would take off paid time. And it was the time for us to be uh, together was a time for us to to do all those things, all those, you know, uh, people in Saudi Arabia, you know, that was the time when we would go to Mecca. We would go and spend the last few days in Mecca and actually be there. Uh, but when it came to Eid, we would be flying back and, and having Eid at home because you wanted to be home for that celebration. Yeah, it's time off. The stores and the restaurants work at a very different time frame, which is amazing because stores stay closed during the daytime and they completely switch it over. So they open right from before iftar. So all the food places are open right from before iftar all the way till sunrise. So you can go and shop and eat and do whatever the heck you want to do. <laughs> go out with your friends and, you know, have a nice meal. Like it's all the activities are available to you. So daytime most young people and kids who are not working are sleeping and, you know, you kind of catch up on your sleep at that time. So you, you it's kind of switched around a little bit. For us here, I'll be honest, when the days are the longest and the nights are the shortest, that's a tough time. And the toughness for me personally was because of lack of sleep, because you break fast around 10 o'clock at night. And then you have to be up to eat. And like, it's frowned upon that I will not eat before starting my fast. I have to have a solid meal before that. For someone who hates having breakfast, the whole idea of eating at three o'clock in the morning just doesn't oh. work. So yeah, so for me, and again, like by the time you finish your prayer and everything, it's almost 12, almost midnight. So you're like, okay, so you're just kind of clattering your way up to bed. And then just the idea that I have to get up at three in the morning so I can at least drink some water or have some oatmeal, put some food in my mouth. And then you just can't do that. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that's... And then you have a full day of work. You and then you have a full day of work. Of course, mm -hmm. you have a full day of work. Um, personally, it's the lack of sleep that gets me more than anything else. That and not being able to have coffee right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. That's a bad that's, combination. That's a bad combination. Yeah. You're listening to the Changing Lenses podcast, shifting our worldview on business and work by looking through a Jedi lens. We'll get right back to the episode after this short message.
Friend, are you resonating with this episode? Maybe you're going through a slow and frustrating job search. Maybe you don't have mentors or career coaches you can relate to who understand the racial, cultural, and gender barriers you face. If so, I feel you. I know what it's like to survive, succeed, and struggle in the Western business world as a Chinese-Canadian immigrant woman. I've been hired seven times, fired once, and done it all on the other side as a people manager and executive recruiter. Through it all, I really wished I had someone from a racialized background who could support me. That's why I created an online coaching program to support people with their job search and emotional needs in a system that discriminates against them. Just click on the link in the show notes that says, help me survive the search to access insider knowledge from a racialized recovering recruiter. That's me. I can't wait to see you there. Okay, so in living in Canada, yes, fine. You're not going to have time off for the kids from school. You're not going to have two weeks, blah, blah, blah. Putting aside just paid time off, not paid time off, because I have very strong opinions about giving some paid time off. But how can we, who are not Muslim, but want to support Muslim women, and especially, sorry, Muslims in general and Muslim women in the workplace, what can we do to allow you to celebrate and, and mark Ramadan the way that you'd want to, you and anybody else who'd want to celebrate the same way? So whenever I've worked with community and especially with community stakeholders, because that's part of my job is, is engaging with community organizations, I would avoid putting in meeting times very close to the time of breaking fast. And again, just being aware of what time the fast is going to break, because like right now, we are heading towards winter. So, because it's a lunar cycle, right? So we, we fast based on the lunar cycle and it's a lunar calendar. So in my lifetime, depending on an average person, let's say if it's a 40-year lifetime, they would have fasted through every season. They would have fasted through all the times of, of the days, you know, short days and, and long days. So in December, I remember fasting in December, it was tough because the prayers are so short. Like the time between the prayers is so short that I would miss praying on time. And again, it's like, okay, I only have a window of an hour in here and I've got a window of an hour and a half in there. And the other thing for me was I needed to get home so that I could have iftar prepared for myself and for my kids at five o'clock and I'm working till 4.30 or I'm working till five. So at that time I had gone and talked to my manager and I'd said, I'm not taking lunch. So can I leave an hour early? Right? So that's something in terms of the accommodation side is you can always switch some time around for people. And at that time, it was like, okay, we're not going to be booking time for having meetings, evening meetings with the community stakeholders, because sometimes we would meet in the evening, like we're not going to do it at five or six o'clock in the evening, because that's the time when people are breaking past, so we'll wait for them. So avoid those kind of timeframes. Most of the people, again, I'm going to say most people just build their own time in their own ways, and then they adjust their time accordingly. But, you know, again, it's just in terms of checking in with your people. And, and that's the most important thing around equity is we don't make the decisions for another person. We need to bring them in the conversation and say, what is it that's going to be better for you at the end of the day? What's going to work for you from week to week? Because things can change week to week, right? So it makes sense for people to, and, and I always say that, that there is a necessity for employees and those who are colleagues to be open about sharing themselves as well and sharing what's going to be important for them. You know, I don't think that 
it's fair for me as an employee to say, I'm not going to tell my manager anything, yet I expect my manager to know what to do. So it's communication and communication is imperative and it's absolutely essential. Um, And yes, supervisors and people who are in positions of power over others definitely have a responsibility to create that safe space to go up and say, hey, I just wanted to learn about this thing. Can you tell me what it is that I can do? So what is easy for me is probably not going to be easy for the other 90% of people. And what's easy for other 90% of people is probably not going to be easy for me. So it's a very personal thing. And it's important for us to, to talk to the person and find out what's going to work for them. I'm so glad that you can put your equity lens on and, and bring that into the conversation as well, because you're totally right. And as much as we are all learning a lot right now, we should never assume that this applies to everybody. This is your experience. It's your family's experience. And it could be different. Yes. So thank you for that reminder. This isn't specific to Ramadan, but I do want to bring in the aspect because I think that this part of the changing lenses is understanding what the significance and the meaning um, and the beauty is behind differences, like a different cultural belief or different religious belief. And so often when like you'd mentioned hijabs, it frustrates me because there's condemnation or stigmatization in Canada and the US around aspects of clothing that signify Islam when we don't even know what it means. Like you're condemning something just because it's different, really. And we've talked, uh, you and I, Salaya, about your headscarf and when you wore it and when you've chosen not to wear it. So maybe if you could share with us what it is to wear the headscarf and then what you went through in deciding whether or not to continue. So I'll start with this story. Um, This is, let's say, 2002. So post-September 11, I was working at an organization. It was uh, newly minted as a coordinator in that place. And I remember I was working and I was just sitting at my desk and there's a sweet, sweet, sweet lady that was waiting to meet with another person across the room. She looks at me and she smiles and I smile back and then she looks at me and smiles again and I smile back again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, so I said, hello. And, you know, so she walks up to me and she says, you know, I want to tell you, you're in Canada. You don't have to wear this on your head. And so oh. she touches my scarf. Okay. I said, I said, thank you. You know, I'm like, all right, let, you know, just leave it at that. She goes, no, no, your husband cannot force you to wear this here. And I said, well, actually, I don't have a husband. So I don't think the non-existent can force me to do anything I don't want. Yes, but okay, your father cannot force you to do this. And I said, well, my dad actually lives in Colorado. So that's about 3,000 miles away from me. He wouldn't know what I'm doing. Um, and honestly, he wouldn't care. So no, I'm doing it for me. And, you know, I'm wearing it because I'm in Canada. And she was a little surprised and taken aback. And then she said, okay, you know what, this one just doesn't get it. And she walked away, but she was very sweet. Um, and the reason I say that is because I've been in Turkey when Turkey, you were not allowed to wear a headscarf. You were forbidden to wear a headscarf if you were to go into a university. You couldn't go into a university as a student and wear a headscarf. And so there are 
countries in this world, and in, in India it's happening right now, there are countries in this world where they're not going to let you do something because that's what they say. And here I am in Canada where I'm allowed to do it. You know, it was about identity. And that's what it always has been was it was about identity. It was about saying, this is who I am. Um, I did. I, I took it off. Uh, I became, and this is me personally saying about myself. It's my judgment on me and nothing else was that I got tired and I became a coward. And that cowardice finally came from feeling judged and having to always respond and always be justifying myself and always be there to, you know, somehow being seen as a representative of an entire I don't know, a billion and a half people. And it just became, like I said, I just, I lost the courage to carry it on. And I say that because it takes here in Canada, when a woman chooses to wear hijab, and it is a choice mostly here, when a woman chooses to wear hijab, you know, a lot of times the expectation is that she's being forced. And I'm not going to deny that. Yes, there could be, there will be places and spaces where maybe it is a cultural expectation at their end. And it's not a religious expectation. It's a cultural expectation for them. And if that's the case, you will see in many cases that the young person may leave the home with a headscarf on. But by the time they get to the school, that headscarf is gone. And it's just not going to be there anymore. And then they'll put it back on once they're walking into, into that space. Most women here, most Muslim women here, choose to wear it. And they're choosing to wear it because it is a matter of identity. It is a matter of them signifying themselves in worship of God. It's who they are. I have no reason or allowance to judge another person by the presence or absence of the headscarf. I am not allowed to do that. I cannot judge another person's faith perspective. I am not allowed to do it. I don't know what's in their heart, but anybody who is going to be wearing that scarf, I will see that and I will respect that as a choice that they're making. Yes, it is courageous at their end. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's not doing me any harm on a personal level. It's not impacting me at all on a personal level. So, I mean, if you see someone walking down the street and they've got a headscarf on, it's a human being who's wearing something, expressing in Canada, which they're allowed to express their faith, their culture in some cases, and their identity as to who they are. And who are we to take that away from them? I'm still feeling really heartbroken, honestly, to hear you use the words. I know you were saying this is just you, your own opinion of yourself, but I don't see it at all as cowardice. I don't know if that's just something that came out or if you really in your heart believe that. To me, this is where also being trauma-informed is so important in equity work, where I think the last word that would come to mind is cowardice. Yes, it's courageous, I think, for women to wear a headscarf or wear any other piece of identifying clothing that would mark them out as different and a target. Because we know like 
it is uh, Muslims are ma- are made targets of, right? And especially, especially, especially for women. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I would honor anybody who chooses to wear it. And I also honor people who choose not to wear it for whatever their reasons are. Who am I to judge? Of course. And I, I don't see it as cowardice at all because even though it takes courage for a woman to wear it, the opposite of that isn't cowardice. I understand what you're saying and I appreciate your comment. And really, I do. I really do. But, but and again, like I said, it's my personal opinion of myself. There's always been a measure of guilt in the fact that I've taken it off in public. And, and I'll be honest, like during Ramadan, when I put it back on and we're going to the mosque, it makes me happy. Mm. It's comforting. And so many times I've, I've thought about putting it back on and I've gotten lazy <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm comfortable in being somewhat invisible. And that's where I am. I can totally resonate and empathize with that, especially when in your day-to-day work, you already have to fight a lot of battles around equity. Yeah. And that's wearing on that's a person. That's a nonstop one. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a nonstop one, yes. Well, Saleha, thank you for gracing us with your stories. And yes, this has all been educational, but it has also been, I think, very deeply relational. And hopefully that actually is a way for me as a non-Muslim to be entering into the spirit of Ramadan too, that, that cleansing and the building of new relationships that we hopefully are having now together. And just so many things that I absolutely love about what you've explained and the beauty, really the beauty and the power of not just Ramadan, but so many things in Islamic faith. And I just want to end by, I mean, you've already shared, like, how can we support you sort of practical ways, like how could coworkers support, but other than just wishing you Ramadan Mubarak and blessings on you as you enter the month with your family and your community, um, any parting words you might want to give to us or other Muslim women? Absolutely. Whoever is around you who's fasting, tell them that whatever you make for breaking the fast, make sure to include me and bring me some tomorrow. (laughs) Good one. Yeah. Maybe some samosas in there too and some tea. Oh, you will have way more than samosas in there, let me tell you. (laughs) Oh, gosh. That's amazing. So Ramadan Mubarak, Ramadan Kareem. Thank you so much. You. Ramadan Mubarak, yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Ramadan Kareem, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Saleha, if, so for anybody who might want to follow up and get in touch with you, and or even just to say thank you for this message, is there a way that they could get in touch with you? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, my first name, my last name, and I, I think they can find me there. I think they will. And especially because we'll put that in our show notes. Uh, for anybody who's looking and, you know, listen, our show notes are on my website, which is www.changinglenses.ca forward slash podcast. So you'll find a transcript of everything that we discussed here, as well as the LinkedIn contact information for Saleha. And if you resonated with this, like, please share this. If you're listening and you're thinking there's somebody who either needs to not joke around about Ramadan, or they want to just, you know, know that there's other women, other Muslims out there who are celebrating with them. Um, and in the spirit together, please share this episode with them. You can do that straight from wherever you're listening right now or from my website. Again, that's changinglenses.ca. Thank you for joining us, listener. Thank you, Saleha, for joining us. It's been so fun and so wonderful having you here. Miigwech, uh, merci, and thank you. Shukriya. Shukriya, thank you. <laughs> that's a wrap. 
This episode of Changing Lenses was produced and hosted by me, Rosie Young, with associate production by William Liu, on land that was taken from many indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Today, it is still the home of many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, with whom I seek to reconcile by learning the true history of colonization, including things that seemed legal and honorable, like treaties, but were often marked by fraud and coercion. I'm changing my lens by learning to see land, creation, even business and economy through Indigenous worldviews. And I'm making new friends and building relationships with Indigenous neighbors, cousins, aunties and uncles in a genuine desire to know, love and honor them and live together in peace. This podcast is one way I'm sharing what I learn to help settler immigrant folks decolonize our thinking and respond to the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Miigwech, doje, xie xie, merci, and thank you. <laughs>